upstream and downstream. And, and, um, and so what we really try to do is make it easier for people who want to change to understand that when you fund a program, you are basically just Velcroing uh, some good idea onto a dysfunctional program, uh, a dysfunctional system. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. And, and don't kid yourself that it's anything better. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So this was a different type of interview as I did not interview a serial entrepreneur who's built multiple tech companies and sold it for millions or a venture capitalist, but instead I spoke to a different type of entrepreneur. Today I spoke with Ben Hecht. Now Ben is an unusual type of entrepreneur because he's actually focused on philanthropy and more specifically on shortening the race pay gap and the race wealth gap. I don't think based on his work, he'll even call himself an entrepreneur, but his approach to solving this problem is nothing short of entrepreneurial. And it's been his work for the last 20 years or so. From creating a site in the early 2000s, allowing people from economically challenged backgrounds to improve their skills to today, where he's the CEO and president of Living Cities, which collaborates with large organizations and local government to help achieve dramatically better results for low income people through investment, research and networks. We talk about a lot of things from everything to do with systemic issues surrounding low-income households to what can be done to change things over the next hundred years. We also discuss his latest book, Reclaiming the American Dream, proven solutions for creating economic opportunity for all. This was a really great episode. I learned a lot and Ben, as most academics, came with all the stats and all the facts. Okay, let's get into the episode. So Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. So Ben, when you are out and about, how do you introduce yourself to people? That I'm the president and CEO of a long-standing collaborative of 18 of the world's leading foundations and financial institutions who together are working to close the racial gaps in income and wealth in America's cities. Wow, that, that will silence any room. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great introduction. I wish I had one like that. Um, so in short, how do you, how do, you do that and, and what do you do? So what we really try to do is harness not just the money, because obviously these institutions have money, but they also have influence. Yeah. And people, when they say what people around the country are doing and they validate it, mm-hmm. it actually empowers people to do more of it. Yeah. Um, and so we do that in a number of ways. We have loans and we have grants and we have one of the world's leading impact investment uh, uh, funds that's dedicated solely to closing the racial gaps in income and wealth. Yeah. Um, but we also have, we work with local governments all over the country who are actually trying to, you know, local governments created many of these or helped to create many of these yeah. disparities. And so they can be a disproportionately important partner in mm. closing them. Yeah. Um, and so we have networks of, of more than a hundred cities that we work with. Uh, we bring them together. They work together and f- 
groups of four or five to try to solve problems and kind of cooperate and compete with each other. Yeah. To do that, um, we use our loan funds to um, make it easier for others to bring their capital in and to blend public and private and philanthropic dollars right. to get to scale. Wow. Very complex. It is complex. Yeah, very complex, <laughs> but uh, a, a worthwhile mission, worth pursuing, right? Yeah, so, uh, absolutely. So how did you, before we get into all the great work that you guys have been doing and your background, like, where did you grow up? How did you get into this line of work? Well, it's interesting. I grew up in New Jersey, not too far from where yeah. we're sitting right now. Yeah. And a um, very kind of blue collar town right outside of Newark. And one of the kind of framing experiences of my life was in the summer of 1968 uh, when Newark was burning. Wow. And I, we lived a few miles west of Newark. And I remember playing out in the street. I was eight or nine years old and seeing this dark black smoke waffle down Bloomfield Avenue. Um, and that has stayed with me forever. And I, I, I lived a very middle-class, white middle-class life, yeah. um, took it for granted. And then I think that stayed with me saying, well, maybe not everybody has yeah. the same like life that I have. Around the corner. <laughs> yes. Um, and it really has been a lifelong uh, ambition to use the privilege and the experience and education and all that that I have to apply it to try to really close close these disparities and really i think it's not just about income and wealth it's about the essence of our democracy right and so early career you'd say you know were you always going to go down that route because you actually um you became a professional lawyer. Yeah, right? I, yeah. I, I actually, I was, I'm an accountant, a CPA yeah, and a CPA. lawyer. Yeah, I know. I yeah. saw that. I was like, CPA? <laughs> I was like, wow, this guy loves to read. <laughs> and my, my people, people one, one person came up to me at some event I was at after I was introduced as both of those. And they said, oh, there's so much not to like yeah. in your resume. Um, but really what it was about was to get these private sector skills. And it really was always my idea. Wow. I didn't know how I would apply them, but I would get these private sector skills and apply them to social justice. Yeah, that's incredible. So you, you kind of had this 20-year plan. I don't think most 18-year-olds when they're going to college have a 20-year plan. Right? They're just trying to make it through the first week. Right? I, I, I know. I, you know. I didn't know where it was going to go, but I knew that I would always be on this pursuit to right. apply it um, to the next thing that could be more impactful than the thing before. Right. So do you ever, I guess, officially practice as a CPA or as a lawyer for a period of time? I, I did. I, I practiced as a CPA at a CPA firm right out of college. Right. Um, one of the, what was then a big eight accounting firm. They're down to four, four now. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be two in a few years. <laughs> yes, it is. And uh, so I did that, um, which convinced me that I never wanted to work in any structured firm unless I was running it. Yeah. Um, and then I went to law school from there. And I actually practiced, but in a clinical law setting. So I was a clinical law professor at Georgetown University Law School. Right. But I ran a clinic. So we were actually what I called community development lawyers, hmm. where we, re we represented community groups. We did a lot of real estate development for yeah. very low income groups of tenants. So that was kind of like your first foot into the door it was okay got it and then you kind of went on to the enterprise foundation i did so what was what was your work there How did that work? so enterprise was founded by one of the most extraordinary people and visionaries for those who know him his name was jim rouse yeah and and jim actually was one of the folks behind um the uh of um this the market the fish market down in in new york um uh, he was behind uh, Harbor Place in Baltimore, but his real thing, what he was known for, was he created the city of Columbia in Maryland. Wow. Yeah, he literally quietly bought land between Washington and Baltimore in order to build, in his mind, the idyllic American city. Wow. 
And in many ways, it still is. Um, and he went on in his later life to create this foundation um, to build, to help communities build decent and safe, affordable housing so the people living there could get up and out of poverty. Um, and so I went to, to do that. He wanted me, he recruited me to go from doing housing work, which I had done at Georgetown, um, to the other half, what he called the rest of our mission to help uh, people get up and out of poverty. Wow. And then you stayed there for a couple of years, about four, four, four years. Four yeah. years. And, and the internet forced me out. And <laughs> <laughs> As it did for many people. And uh, in, the, in the sense that um, if you think about the first browser being 94, I think I was four years old at the time. Is that right? Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> so I was not. <laughs> and um, I, I went to the Enterprise Foundation in 1996. So the, the first browser was about two years old. Yeah. And, and uh, me and my colleague, Ray Ramsey, um, once we understood what the internet could do, we no longer could stay doing traditional uh, housing and community development work. We had to right. really figure out how could we take this incredible power of the internet and scale it and scale it for poor people. Yeah. You know, and we used to say when we started, you know, the internet can make it so place and race don't have to matter mm -hmm. as they have for 400 years in America. Yeah, that's good. Um, and uh, it's turned out not to be true, unfortunately. Uh, the, the, uh, but we started a, an organization called One Economy in, right. in 2000. I did that for seven years. Ray went on to do that for a bunch more. Um, and then I took this job uh, at Living Cities in 2007 um, out of uh, seven years after One Economy. Yeah, and we're going to talk about uh, Living Cities, but obviously the name of the show is Startup Hand-Me-Down. So yes. <laughs> we have to take some lessons in terms of business and nonprofit, I guess. Yes. Yes. So in co-founding One Economy, what was the first thing that you did? Like, how did you start? It's so funny. Um, it was all about finding space for people to work. And um, I mean, we had the ideas. We literally, as you know, we were a nonprofit, but it's all the same. Same thing. It's all the same. Yeah. Uh, Ray and I uh, went to, it's a, it's a famous, it's uh, folklore in, in our lives. Um, we actually went to this incredibly fancy event for, for Enterprise that was in wow. New York at the Russian Tea Room together. And it was, you know, this huge sculpture. There was someone singing Broadway tunes. Oh, wow. And we looked at each other and we said, we can't do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and then we left and we went to a hotel in where we were staying. Yeah. And on the back of a napkin, we wrote out the ideas of one economy, you know, broadband, poor people's homes, yeah. access to content that they could use to transform their lives. Yeah. And once we had that idea in our heads... We literally couldn't stay in the job. Yeah. You know, it's like any entrepreneur you talk to, they tell you the same story. Yep. We just couldn't stay. Um, and then the question was, well, where were we going to go? <laughs> and the money will come, but where are we going to go so we can have, you know, folks work? And there weren't, we work at the time, mm. you know, this is 2000. And, um, and, and so a, uh, a longtime friend of mine, in fact, my boss, when I was an accountant, a, a public accountant, wow. um, has and still has a huge accounting firm, Tom Rafa, Rafa and Associates. And Tom said, I can give you space. And long story short, we walk in to, to see the space and he pushes the down button. And he gave us space that was essentially an, a big storage room wow. where, where we had to move all the tables and chairs that oh, had been wow. stored. And we were there for a year. It had no heat. It had no air conditioning. <laughs> it smelled like... Real bootstrap. <laughs> bootstrapping. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's how we got our start. And what was your, I guess, what was the mission at the time? It was to really bring... To, to bring, uh, to make broadband ubiquitous in the homes of low-income people around the globe. Right. So they could then use it to, to, uh, to get access to content that we built and aggregated for self-help, health, 
building businesses, yeah. um, uh, understanding uh, how to manage your money, yeah. everything. Um, you know, early on, it was in English and in Spanish uh, it, when almost all the content online was English. And then for a while, we were the largest and most popular website in Arabic uh, wow. because the uh, um, Jordan and um, Intel actually supported us to build an Arabic website, the same information, but in Arabic. Oh, that's incredible. And how were people hearing about you guys? I mean, obviously, it's a nonprofit. You know, I guess you had to get a load, loads of donations. How did you basically ultimately build a telecoms business, yeah. a media business? Like, how, how were you doing all of this? It was built on the power of the content mm. um, because people said no, poor people won't, use, won't know how to use the internet. Poor right. people won't use the content. And within the first 12 months, we had a million original users. Wow. And who can argue with it? We had Google Analytics telling our, our, our donors that the, that was the use. Yeah. And, um, and so it kind of built on itself. We localized it in 30 markets in the US. Wow. Uh, and then we were, while, while uh, American technology companies like Cisco and Intel were, were growing around the globe, they needed uh, and wanted to do local work in those countries where they were building factories. And right. they brought us in to build these local right. content uh, uh, sites. It's exhilarating. So you guys went from, you know, to, I read somewhere you was a two to three <laughs> person team. You grew to like 50 people. We did. It's incredible. And it's still going today, right? It, 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 mostly international. Yeah. Um, uh, we are really, we grew really fast um, during the, um, and I had left at this time, but um, right after I left when Obama was elected, uh, we got an earmark or no, I guess we got, we, we competed and got support um, from the uh, president's um, stimulus bill, a lot of it went into broadband access around the around the oh, country, yeah. and we actually did a lot of that. Wow! I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is, I guess, trying to lead the charge on that as well and bring internet to everyone ar across the globe. Did he reach out to you guys? No. <laughs> He's like, hey, we've been doing well, this for the last a, eight years. <laughs> that's the challenge. That's the challenge. Is it's it's hard to get. I mean, we had a really good. Um, a lot of support. We did a campaign that we called Bring IT Home, Bring It Home. Yeah. And we had uh, 15 major uh, telecoms and, and tech companies that supported it right. over the year for a three-year three term. But it's really hard to go from their philanthropy or their advocacy or um, policy to their business side. Yeah. Remains really hard. Yeah. I mean... And that's some of the that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get you guys on the show because you know you've taken a really a real product approach to solving this problem right which is incredible yes um so then so you leave one economy still going you know your your, your brainchild and then you yes. go and join living cities so what does living cities do so we're 28 years old this summer and it's this collaborative of all, of all these foundations and financial institutions that really for years was about how do we actually look at America's cities and change the economic condition of low-income people. Right. And this was started by the Rockefeller It was started, Foundation. it was. Uh, a visionary uh, New Yorker named Peter Goldmark, Goldmark yes. yeah, was the head of uh, the Rockefeller Foundation at the time. I think it was a child. He might have been 39 years old. <laughs> child? <laughs> Jeez. Who am I then? An embryo. <laughs> and Peter's still in New York. Peter's amazing. Um, and he basically helped bring together philanthropy and financial institutions to say philanthropy can bring grants, which communities need to build capacity. Financial institutions can bring loans, which are often hard for community-based organizations yeah. to access. Yeah. And let's blend them together and build a robust, affordable housing and community development industry in America. 
And for our first 15 years, that's what we did. I, I knew the organization in those first 15 years because I was at Enterprise, and Enterprise was one of the two institutions that got, got the grants and the loans. Right. And then seven years into One Economy, they wanted to change from doing this um, place-based work or this um, uh, really kind of real estate-driven change to how do we actually change the lives of people, right. not just the place. Yeah. And so they hired me to spend some time and throw a lot of spaghetti against the wall. Yeah. See what stuck. <laughs> Strategize. <laughs> yes. And uh, so it was in many ways um, not a startup, but in, in many ways a well-funded turnaround. Yeah. And it was a great opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I read on your website um, on LinkedIn a quote from Martin Luther King, um, structural racism touches every black person, every aspect of their life. Yes, it does. Um, and it hurts him most in his pocketbook. Yes. I mean, that was said how many years ago? How relevant do you think that statement is? Oh, my today? God. So yesterday was the anniversary of his death yeah. in Memphis. And, you know, that was when he was going on, beginning the Poor People's Campaign. Yeah. And right before that campaign, um, he, he, when he talked about why it should be a poor person's campaign and not just a civil rights campaign. Mm. And essentially what he said was that the economic disparities in America, this was 1968, the economic disparities in America um, did not happen by chance. Yeah, that they were they were devised and structurally um, uh, imbued. Yeah, yeah, very intentional. Yeah. Um, and they continue to this day. And in and in many ways, and what's so troubling, and why we're so proud of of, of our of our very uh, of our intensive focus on closing those gaps and unapologetically, is is that um, when I talk to people of color today, whether it's socially or financially who are my age, you know, in their 50s, they say times have not been worse for them in their lifetime. Wow. Whether it's walking on the street and things people say to them yeah. or their ability to buy a house mm -hmm. in a neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they literally say things have not gotten better in the last 40 years, but have in, in fact gotten worse. Wow. And I guess, you know, how do you, how do you change this? I mean, yeah. this is obviously your life's work, right? Yeah. So how do you go about changing this? Well, it's interesting. Um, it's, what we've really learned over the last bunch of years is that it, it, it's about a person. It's about mm -hmm. that person in their role. Yeah. And it's about when in that role, how they change the system. Yeah. And it's not any more complicated than that, but, it, but that's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so we really are about how do we get to leaders, whether they're community leaders or mayors yeah. or any, and everybody in between, CEOs, how do we get to them? How do we help them see what they were, that they never were taught to see, which are these structural and institutional racism that exists in their own institutions and, and, are, and in our society? How do they then, once they understand that, say in my role as head of living cities, uh, a venture capitalist, a mayor, how do I actually use the power of my role to change those systems? And so I'll give you an example. We, we did a two-year initiative with five cities around the country where the mayors very publicly said, we are going to put a racial equity lens on every agency in our government. Wow. And we are going to identify what are the barriers that we have to opportunity for people. How does it show up? How do we not only address the policies, but how do we actually address the people? Yeah. So the city of Louisville, for example, has... Uh, trained substantially all of their employees, more than 6,000 civil, civil employees, yeah. on, on doing racism. Mm. The city of Austin is about to embark on a three-year uh, uh, journey to do the same. Wow. That's incredible. 
And like, where do you even start with that? Is this where they call you in? They're like, Ben, you need to come and help us. <laughs> no, but we welcome that. Yeah. Be hacked at livingcities.org. <laughs> yeah, listen, we'll put your link in. The, we'll put your email in the bio. Absolutely. And, um, but we do it through these networks that we've helped to create and support. Yeah. So, for example, we have a, a network of 40 big cities who send their chiefs of staff to a, um, what we call the Project on Municipal Innovation twice a year at Harvard's Kennedy School. Yeah. We've done it for 12 years. The chiefs of staff and the cities continue to participate even when their mayors lose office wow. or, or, or leave office. Yeah. Because the chiefs of staff say, this is critical to the long-term impact of our city. And even when the chief changes, he tells the next one. Yeah. And so we, we have these networks and then we have our loan funds. And so people hear about those. And, and, and they say, you know, can we, so we're, we're, um, we're in the process of making a loan, for example, to the city of Minneapolis, who's created a loan fund for the focus of entrepreneurs of color in Minneapolis to not just do mom and pop stores, but actually these are entrepreneurs who are going to create tens, hundreds of jobs, income and wealth for residents and the owners of those companies. Um, so we have a lot of the, that's why we're so complex. We have a lot of ways that we touch people and these networks with this idea of kind of kind of creating this viral demand yeah and how do you get i mean it's great that you've got you know these governmental organizations taking this um this lens on the sort of the business but how do you get the fortune 500 companies yeah. to do that because we i mean i'm sure you saw this recently oracle released the data that you know all of their black employees are underpaid yes right and it's been going on for decades right like right. how do we get these guys and other people to actually say, look, we're actually underpay, underpaying people. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're in the process of something right now that I really hope over time is going to, is going to get to that in a big way. Yeah. So we, we did a, uh, about 14 of our 18 members looked over a, a year long period at why don't we have a more inclusive economy? Why aren't mm-hmm. there regions in America that just have greater inclusivity, greater, fewer disparities. Yeah. And one of the, and, and, and out of that work, one of the things we found because a third of our, you know, more than a third of our membership are private companies. Yeah. Um, and what we found were many of these private companies realize that the future of their domestic business relies on black and brown people having a lot more income yep. than they currently have. It's yep. just a business. You know, I think it's a moral imperative, but it's also an economic so, yeah, imperative. Yeah, it's like the ecosystem depends. It depends on, on it. Yeah. And so what we, heard, what we heard and saw were a number of companies, I, I don't want to say dozens, but a, more, at least a dozen, who see it as a business imperative. And so we are in the process of doing what we think of as changing the narrative with business leaders. And so we're in the process of we have about 14 um, uh, conversations set up right now. I won't talk about the companies, but they're companies you will know. um, Where we're saying to them, will you sign off on a pledge that says this is important for America and it's important for us? And tell us how you are changing the way you operate, Mm -hmm. how you hire how you uh, develop products, the people on your board to be able to make you to be the most profitable company in, in, in the new majority. Yeah. Um, and we really think that there's, we're going to have a significantly robust narrative campaign, not to tell the public, but for CEOs to tell each other. Yeah. And this goes back to the quote, which I heard you say, which I absolutely loved, which was, uh, people need to stop taking a programmatic approach to a systemic issue. Exactly. I mean, I love that. Yes. That's like, that should be the tagline <laughs> for the next 10 years. It should. I mean, can you just say a, bit, a little bit more about that? Because I think that's spot on. It is. And it's one of the biggest challenges we have with philanthropy, not just yeah. institutional philanthropy, but yeah. high net worth, 
you know, folks, many in tech, yeah. you know, is that once they have their money, they're like, I want to give it away, which is noble. Yep. But if you give it away and you do it in, in ways that's charity, you're not mm. changing any system. Yes. You're helping people. Uh, it's important. But you're ulti- you're not helping the next generation. Yeah, you're not. It's 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 you know you have to think upstream and downstream, and and um, and so what we really try to do is make it easier for people who want to change mm. to understand that when you fund a program, you are basically just velcroing uh, some good idea onto a dysfunctional program, mm. a, a dysfunctional system. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. And, and don't kid yourself that it's anything better. Yeah. Even if you take a program that helps 100 people and you say, we're going to scale it and help a million people, yeah. it's still one piece of a very broken system. Yes, so true. And, and it's hard for people to accept that, but it's true. And so what, we're, what we say is it's really about the systems. And one of the quotes that somebody loved that I said and cracks me up, it's like, process is the new program. Mm. And it really is true because yeah. it's about how people work together on, towards the result that they want to achieve. Yes. Because any one piece isn't a result, it's an input. Yeah. And when they come together and they hold themselves accountable for a result, you get the result, or you have a chance of getting the result. Yeah. And so what can organizations, you know, these, I mean, we're sitting inside Betaworks right now, you know, VC firm, hundreds of millions, and they have great initiatives. Totally. There's so many VCs who have great initiatives, but what can they proactively do to change this narrative? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a couple of things. One is I wrote a book last year called Reclaiming the American, the American Dream. We're going to talk about that. Okay, excellent. Some around and, that. and in that are actually specific things that people can do from wherever they sit. Yeah. If you're a venture capitalist, I actually have a huge list for, for those people people because it's where how the decisions they make on where their money goes yeah. is critical. Mm-hmm. And if they continue to make decisions based on how they've made them, meaning they look across the table and they see a person of color and like, haven't done that before, too risky. Or they look across the table, they see a person of color and they say, you haven't gotten venture capital before, then I'm not going to give you the first one. Mm-hmm. Not a good idea. You know, so all of these norms that make up venture capital are not rules. They were not passed down by Moses. Yeah. They actually are norms that can be changed just like they were created. Mm-hmm. And the only way they change is when the leaders in the industry change them. You know, and so it really is, it's, it's that person role system thing. They can actually say, what do I control or have power over? And how can I change it? Yeah, no, that's 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 incredible. And I hope uh, VCs who listen to this show reach out to you. I hope um, so too. And and change the narrative. I mean, because we know less than two percent of venture capital goes to people of color. Uh, you know, it's less than ten percent that goes to to women. So something does need to change. So I had so I've had two um, events with um, black women, female black venture capitalists. Yeah. Um, Monique Woodard, Keisha Cash, both of them incredibly successful. They've worked at other firms. They've brought companies yep. public. When they go out to raise a fund, they struggle to raise 25, 50 million. Yeah. Whereas the white guys from the same firms are out there raising 100, 250 yep. million dollars. It's not good for America. It's not good. It's, it's, it's not just about, it's not fair. It's actually, they're making different decisions about investments. Yeah. They're, they're, they have networks that are very different from others. And we as a nation are losing the, 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 um, the dynamism that that would all bring because we stick with the same players in the same ways. Yeah. I think I, I saw on one of your um, interviews that uh, black people make 50 cents on every dollar. Yes, to white people. And for Latinos, it was 72 cents. Yeah. That is bizarre. It's horrible. I didn't and even know that. I mean, obviously I'm from London, so I, I dread to think what it is over there. But yeah. <laughs> 
It's just, yeah, I had no idea. And wealth, is, which is how you get out of poverty, you know, how you would change intergenerational. Wealth is m much more obscene. You know, yeah. people focus on the income. But, but wealth is... They, so That's generational. It's totally generational. Yeah. And, and, and so white people, median wealth of white people is about $140,000. Yeah. Median wealth of people of color is about $10,000. Wow. And, and, and Prosperity Now, which is a nonprofit in the U.S., um, says that it would take, if whites never got another penny of wealth, it would take people of color 288 years to catch up. I can't even. Yeah, you can't even think about <laughs> it. I can't even. <laughs> That's many lifetimes. It's many lifetimes, and it's why programmatic responses are not going to change it. It's not. I want to switch gears now and, and talk a little bit about the, the book. So Reclaiming the American Dream, Proven Solutions for Creating Economic Opportunities for All. So there's five chapters, five parts. Yes. Can you talk to me about each section? So yes. let's start with the enabling opportunities through education. Yeah. yeah. So I had, a, I had a few questions around that. Sure, absolutely. Um, because, you know, <laughs> as an entrepreneur in this day and age, we know, you know, education has been completely democratized, right? right. So with the likes of, you know, even the one economy back in the day. That's right. Right now you've got Udemy, you've got all these other online courses, you've got access to everything. Yes. So do you still think education is the answer still? Well, and when I think of education, I think of education in terms of an institution. Yes. Um, and, you know, very structured. Sitting in a chair. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas continuous <coughs> learning is very important. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what... <laughs> What is important is that there's a, there's like an un um, there's a there's just a true fact right. in America today that every year that you have in formal education post high school adds two hundred fifty thousand dollars to your lifetime earnings wow. every year, and so the concept of the book really it was not that these are the greatest ideas in the world it's that there's low hanging fruit yeah. if we actually want to help millions of Americans right now, mm. and 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 so I I highlight ways that we could actually get people that next year, that next two years, the next yeah. four years in ways that are not expensive, that are actually proven because they've landed all over the country already. And not just in San Francisco, New York and all these, but actually they started in Texas or Ohio mm -hmm. or, or uh, rural Tennessee. And the idea really is, <clears throat> so I'll give you one that, that I think is so powerful, which is early college high schools is that there are 280 high schools in America that already, when you graduate high school, you get a high school degree and an associate's degree. Right. And so you'd say, well, why wouldn't every high school do that? Mm. And, the, and the answer to that is, why wouldn't every high school do that? Yeah. Of course they could. Yeah. <clears throat> of course they should. And, and so I dug into that to understand why they didn't. And one of the questions that I asked every superintendent and every college president that worked together to make this happen is like, are there any laws or regulations that kept you from doing this? Right. And the answer was no. Mm. It was only that they had to have the will to make it happen. You could change the laws and regs, make it easier, but there's literally no law or reg. And so you have more than 100,000 kids who've graduated high school with uh, a high school degree and more than a high school degree, not all associate's degrees, one or two years of right. post-high school. Um, 280, 100,000 kids, but there's 28,000 high schools hmm. and 5 million uh, kids in high school. You know, so we could do that. We know how to do that. And why not get the kid? You know, there's all this hubbub of free college. This yeah. is free college. Yeah. It's, it's free college. <laughs> yeah. 
That's bizarre. I had no idea. I had no idea. I actually found that during the, the research. And then so part two is about increasing income through jobs. Yes. So can we talk about that? Maybe yeah. Well? So this is where venture capital is so important and yeah. the rest of the whole capital system. Yeah. Um, because many people appropriately talk about job destruction, AI, robots, and all that. But we know in any country's history, there's always been job destruction based on technology. Yeah. Always. Right? The horse, <laughs> the, yeah. the, 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 the steam engine, the... <clears throat> And, and, um, and so that's, that's just reality. Yeah. But the real challenge in my mind is that in America, the job creation machine is broken and it's been broken for 40 years. And, and the data is really quite clear. A lot of this um, I get from our partner, the Kauffman Foundation. And that for the last 40 years, the number of companies that have started up has been on a steady decline. It's down 50% in the last 40 years. Wow. And about five years ago, the number of companies that died in a year exceeded the numbers that started up for the first time since we've been keeping the data. Wow. Interestingly, <clears throat> and a lot of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is race. That in, in the late 90s, more than 77% of all startups were started by white people. In the last couple of years, that's down to into the 50s. And given the disparities we talked about, about income and wealth, yep. we all know you start a business with friends and family. If you're a person of color and your friends and family have 59 cents yeah. in income to a dollar that the white people have, they don't have friends and family money yeah. to yeah. lend you. <laughs> yeah. you know? and, and, and so we literally, and 90% of net new jobs come from companies less than five years old. So if we don't solve the startup problem with the growing population we have, people of color, our long-term, uh, 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 the long-term uh, forecast is not is not good. So we can celebrate today, but twenty years, thirty years, it really isn't good. And so I talk about the ways that um, we are getting capital, whether it's through loans and grants, whether it's through investor, you know, investors, but it's also through revenue. You know, most companies grow from revenue, yeah. and and they actually don't want debt, and many don't want equity either. Yeah. Um, and so I highlight a lot of ways that uh, cities and institutions are harnessing the assets within their control, like their spend, yeah. to be able to get it to grow companies of color who are local and actually going to intending to grow jobs. So spot on. And that, and that is part of the conversation at the moment in the startup ecosystem that people of color don't have the friends and family around, which is always kind of like the cornerstone of how most startups Of grow. course. It's the first 50K, first 100K. I mean, the story of Squarespace, for example, you know, billion dollar company. Yeah. 30K loan from his father. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that can't be how it has to happen. Yeah. And it doesn't have to happen. That's what I mean by these are norms. Yeah. You know, and, and what we have to do, I call, I, in the book, I talk a lot about, we just need to create new normals. Mm. It's, not, it's not good or bad. It's just a new normal yeah. for our world. Yeah. You know, so the early college high school is a good idea, a good example. In the, in the 1900s, when my grandparents came here from the Eastern Europe, they got a high school education that was good enough for the economy at the time. Right now, a high school education isn't good enough for the economy at the time. So we need a new, new normal, which is you get an associate's degree from, at, from high school. Yeah. Right? It's, not, it, it's not a values judgment. It's just how you have to evolve. And adapt. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. And then so the third section is increasing wealth through home ownership. Yeah. So buying a home is very difficult. Um, it's difficult in London. It's difficult here too. Yes, everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. It's difficult everywhere. I mean, house prices are rising every year. Yes. So how, how does one get onto the ladder? 
Well, so a couple things that's so important about homeownership, especially in the U.S., which is it still remains the number one way that people build wealth. Yeah. And, and so if you look at people of color, um, you know, I talked about those wealth disparities, mm-hmm. you know, 140 for pe- whites and, and 10,000 for people of color. If they have that 10,000, 90 plus percent of it is because they have equity in a home. Mm. They don't have any other um, forms of wealth. Wow. Whereas white folks have their 401k, they have stocks, they have it. And so if you don't own a home and you're a person of color in America, you basically don't have wealth. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, how do we change that? <clears throat> and it's not the only way, but I think in, in my lifetime, let's figure out how to do it on homeownership. Yeah. And, and, and there's a number of ways from, from as simple as how do we help people with down payments? But the other way is actually to get to the systems mm. because we still have systems that are imbued with racism, yeah. whether it's where people will uh, take you and to look at a home or how people underwrite you when you go to borrow money. Um, and, but there are really promising ways, literally hundreds of thousands of people have already benefited from alternative, uh, approaches to homeownership that instead of hundreds of thousands, they should be tens of millions. Yeah. That's, 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 that's really important. Um, so homeownership still the number one. By far. By far. Wow. Go on, go on the ladder. Um, <laughs> and then creating opportunities through access. Yes. So this is, you know, my lifeblood from one economy days. Yeah. And, you know, because today it's really not about where you're working, where you live. Yeah. Very rare. Anybody, you know, I, my, my, my permanent home is in Washington. I spend most of my time in New York. Yeah. You know, and, and, and maybe it's extreme, but, but many people do not work near where they live yeah. or in their neighborhood. And so we think about it. Uh, Zav Briggs on my board, a longtime MIT professor, wrote a book a number of years called The, um, the um, Geography of Opportunity. And that's really what it's about. It's like, what's the geography of opportunity? And the geography should be both physical. Yeah. How do you get around? And, uh, and, and virtual. Can, I can work anywhere in the world. And that requires two things. And they're all possible today. One is ubiquitous broadband mm-hmm. to get to be able to work from home or work wherever and work anywhere. And the other is to use <coughs> um, shared mobility and other ways to make it easier for people to do the first and the last mile. Yeah. And whether it's car sharing, whether it's bikes, whether it's uh, scooters, scooters it, it, all of those things, they, they should be a seamless, affordable way for people to do the first and last mile. Yeah. And then the final section, strengthening the civic fabric and our commi- commitment to greater good. And in many ways, I think that's the most important because yeah. you never, you can't sustain the first four if you don't actually have a, a long time commitment to the greater good. Right. And, and I talk in the book, and it was really interesting doing the research. It was really quite fun because I was like, okay, is, has there been a history of civic engagement where people care about each other in America? Yeah. You know? and, and, and it was interesting because de Tocqueville saw that in the 1800s. Um, uh, another uh, sociologist, uh, Gunnar Myrdal, saw it in the 1900s, uh, although Myrdal, un- unlike um, – uh, de Tocqueville said, it's amazing. There's all these f- Americans who are really interested in civic society in yeah. each other, yeah. except for this 400-year stain of slavery that continues uh, um, to, to really um, uh, uh, imbue you know, everything that happens in America. But um, long story short, that existed in our country for years, this commitment to each other. But starting really in the 70s and 80s, it started to fall apart yeah. for a lot of reasons. And what I'm seeing around the country is it's coming back. And it's coming back through this kind of virtuous uh, circle of effective government 
that's taking on these issues and saying they're important, like I was talking about the city of Louisville, yeah. you know, um, citizens who are engaging with that government and with each other in new and way, new and different ways from code for America, you know, on bringing uh, technology for yeah. good yeah. Um, to folks that are actually training community leaders and then putting them on local boards and commissions. Yeah, so good. for example, um, Congresswoman Elon Omar, who's been in the news a lot lately, um, from, uh, from mi- mi- mini- she's from Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Yeah, she's one of the two uh, Muslim uh, me- uh, yes. new members of Congress. Yes. She actually got her political start on being appointed to one of these boards and commissions wow. in Minneapolis. Wow. So it works. It works. <laughs> it really d- it disproportionately. Works. Wow. Because they they don't have any people don't have access to power. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the data, the vast, vast, vast sixty seventy percent of all elected leaders white men. And so we, we have to have real practical ways to change that. More than a dozen places around the country are doing these boards and commissions, and the, the leaders that come out of it end up with power. Yeah. Um, and then the, finally, there's these growing numbers of partnerships, a lot of them private sector folks, who say we need to be like the long-term uh, folks who look for the long-term health of this community. Yeah. Uh, because mayors come and go, uh, heads of universities come and go, but can we have a long-term view? And it's this long-term view of civic leaders, these civically engaged people, and a government that is effective, that we're really seeing ch- creating this long-term commitment to good. I mean, we can talk about this all day long. <laughs> <laughs> this is great stuff, Ben. Um, so, so we've spoken a lot about the macro. Yeah. And I want to work towards wrapping up now, but I want to ask, what can people do? Let's go micro. What can people do for themselves? Like, yeah. what can people in low-income households and um, low-income communities and sure. cities do for themselves today yeah. that can help them and put them on a better trajectory for what they Absolutely. Have Absolutely. Well, one of, one of the things is, you know, I, I, be, I can't ever answer that without saying they can't control the systems. They can't. So the people <laughs> who control the systems have to fix those so yeah. people can benefit. You know, oftentimes these conversations about the failures of individuals, mm. you know, they don't work hard enough. They, you know, all yeah. that as if it's a personal uh, problem. And as we've talked about throughout this, it's a structural and yep. institutional problem. Absolutely. That said, they can go to their school board and their elected officials and demand an early college high school. You know, they can go to their city, their county, their state and demand a down payment assistance program that's focused for people like them that gives them enough down payment assistance to buy a house. You know, they can go to their employer if they're employed and ask for to be able to use their uh, tuition assistance to get these competency based degrees that I talk about in the book, Mm. you know, and they can get involved and they can get appointed to a board and commission, a board, a local board and commission. They can run for Congress. They can be Elon Omar or whoever they want to be. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Um, I want to work towards wrapping up, as I said, um, and ask a few fireside questions. So I always ask people these standard questions, um, rapid fire. Okay. So give me your best answer. I'm ready. Uh, what has or who has been your biggest inspiration to date? <sighs> Oof, rapid fire. That's so hard. <laughs> I'd, I'd say, I'd say family-wise, my father, professionally, Jim Rouse, who I talked about earlier. Yeah. Favorite podcast? <sighs> Pod Save America. Pod Save America. <laughs> I know you don't listen to too many podcasts. I don't. So that's fine. That's the one I've listened to. Uh, favorite blog? Um, a column? Yeah. Um, 
I really love, there's a, there's a handful of columnists who are writing a lot, of, it's conservative ones in particular, interesting writing about racism. Wow. And it's what David Brooks recently wrote about a case for reparations, yes. saying he was always against it. Today, Michael Gerson wrote about, now that he understands racism, it's a scourge on America. Yeah. Um, so I actually follow and support any of these columnists, especially white ones who are willing to actually speak the truth once they see it. That's good. Uh, favorite book? Other than... Other than mine. Because <laughs> you've, you've done four books. Right? I have. I yeah. have. Yeah. Um, I'd say um, on the fiction side, um, there's, a, uh, there's, a, there's a very small book called uh, Train Dreams mm. um, that uh, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the author, but great, a great, great author. Um, and on the nonfiction side, I actually um, uh, uh, f- talk about it a bunch in my book, but it's called American Amnesia. And it's about how America was able to grow because we were able to balance government uh, and democracy and capitalism. Yeah, that's good. Uh, favorite Instagram account? Do you have don't Instagram? do it. Yeah, I don't no, do it. A risky question. <laughs> uh, Twitter? Twitter? Yeah. Okay. Tw- yeah, I do Twitter a lot. Okay, favorite Twitter account? Uh, um, God, that's a hard one. Um, it tends to be people who are in my, in my world. Uh, God, it's, I'm not doing rapid fire well at all. On this. <laughs> we'll cut this down. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I'll make it sound like it's Okay, fun. it was, came right out. Well, I, actually, one of my favorite people on Twitter is a woman who works for me and was just awarded the um, uh, one of the most the ten upcoming writers in America in, oh, wow. in the world, wow. Nadia Awusu. Oh, and wow. uh, Nadia has a new book coming out next year, and Simon Schuster. But I follow Nadia, and she both is both poetic in what she writes about and also a great uh, advocate for economic racial justice. Okay, what's the one thing you wish you could do that you currently can't do? I'd like to be president of the United States. I think you should run. I mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to vote here because I'm from the UK, but if I can, I definitely will vote for you, Ben. You got my vote. What's the advice you would give to your 21-year-old self? Definitely, definitely follow your heart. Which you have done. I've been fortunate to do it. It's the harder road to take, but much more meaningful. Yeah. And much more, much more impactful. Definitely. Um, if you had $100 in your favorite city, what do you spend it on? Food. Any particular type of food? Um, I go to my favorite website, which you didn't ask me about, which is 38 Eater, which uh, uh, highlights the 38 most popular or best restaurants in a city, wherever they are in the world. Wow. And they tend to be incredibly accurate. And I'll spend it on one of the restaurants on that list. 38 Eater. I think I found my new favorite page. <laughs> um, what's the one thing that I guess early companies should ignore in the early days? I mean, I know you mentioned, you know, being in the cellar. Yeah. What yeah. kind of thing should people ignore? Um, oh, absolutely have to ignore the naysayers telling you that whatever your idea is, is a bad one and that it's been done before or it's never possible. I mean, we were at a meeting, Ray and I, in our early days where someone said to us, um, yeah, that's an idea in search of a concept. And we walked out of that meeting and said, we will prove us our idea to be right. Yeah. Which you did. Which we did. Did you, did you send that email back to that guy? And We may have. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your advice. He was wrong. That's good. And finally, what's your vision for Living Cities? I mean, I think we've spoken about yeah. you know, where we want to see 
the world going but personally what do you think as your role as leader and president of Living Cities what's the vision for the company? Uh, our vision really is um, to use all of our influence the, the institutions that we have access to um, and build the largest possible network of people individuals who, who are understand that in their role, they can close these gaps that we made over the last 400 years, and we can close them in our lifetime if we all actually use 100% of our personal agency to do it. That's good. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. This Pleasure. was incredible. Um, if people want to get in contact with you, where can they, where can they find you? Uh, behecht at livingcities.org. Go to our website, www.livingcities.org. You can email me directly through there too. And Twitter? Twitter, at Ben Hecht. Just want to say another massive thank you to Ben for coming on the show and to Betawork Studios for hosting. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on the Apple Podcasting app or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time, guys, keep grinding.